tēnā koutou katoa, no mai whakarongo mai, ki te kite kōna i pūrangi nei, tūtāne, ko Appa Waitini tōko ingoa. Hello, welcome back to the Becoming Tāne podcast, my name is Appa Waitini. You are about to listen to episode 4 of season 1. This is a podcast about growing great guys. If this is the first episode that you are listening to of the Becoming Tāne podcast, welcome to the podcast, whānau. If you're a returning listener, thank you for sticking with us. The title of today's podcast is Excellence is a Habit, and our guest today is Tabai Madsen. But before we speak to our guest today, I would like to give you a brief introduction about him. Tabai Madsen was born in Fiji and moved to New Zealand when he was about five years old. Tabai attended Christ College in Christchurch. After high school, Tabai was eventually selected for the Canterbury NPC team, where he played 58 games for them. He went on to play another 25 games for the Canterbury Crusaders. Tabai is All Black number 950. In 1995 and 1996, Tabai played five games for the All Blacks. Unfortunately, he played no tests, but fortunately for Fiji, Tabai was selected to play at the 1999 World Cup, where he played two tests for them. After leaving New Zealand, Tabai played for Breve in France, London Irish in England, Yamaha Jubilo in Japan. In his final years at Yamaha, he took on the coaching role and he has been coaching ever since. Tabai has coached in Japan, Australia, England and New Zealand and had stints with the Fijian national team and the Māori All Blacks. Tabai is currently the assistant coach at the Chiefs in Hamilton and this is his third year there. Kilda, welcome to Bi Medicine. Yeah, Kilda, Nisambula. The first question I have: What events in your life so far has had the biggest impact on you? It's probably dawning on me now that my early childhood has had an impact on you know um, where I am now. And you, you probably don't want it, but you, a lot of my things that I value and the way that I make judgments on things is definitely from my mum when I was really young. I was born in Fiji, spent a little bit of time in village, and then came to New Zealand when I was five. And and clearly, I think the other thing is just the experiences we've had, like in that little bio snapshot, I've been really lucky to live around the world. Japan and France are really contradictory. Uh, lived in Australia, which is a big New Zealand, you know, a lot like socially, um, and the UK. So I've probably been influenced by all those different experiences. Do you remember moving to New Zealand? What's your first memory of that? I hardly remember being in Fiji. And when we came to New Zealand when I was about four and a half, and that first year I went to school. And when I went to school, I couldn't speak English. So um, I went to school as a Fijian kid. And I probably remember that part, that integration. I don't know why. I don't remember the year or my teachers. But what I do remember is not being able to speak English and that integration. And then mum decided not to talk Fijian at home to help us all uh, learning. Like my sister, I've got two older sisters who spoke English and I was quite young and so didn't, didn't speak English. What about that integration do you remember? It's amazing what you remember because you don't remember anything about being four or five years old, hardly. And there's some things like I remember going to the loo in primary school, leaving class, the loo was around the corner and I went to the loo and I was singing a Fijian song, whatever it is. 
come back and I remember my teacher saying, oh, what a lovely Fijian song that was. And then me thinking, I can't, you know, I don't even know what to say because I can't speak your language. But, you know, kids are so adaptable. And mum said within six months, I was pretty much fluent in English. And then like, we all very quickly lost our Fijian, which, you know, we're gutted with now. It's probably one of the few, one of the few things you kind of, you regret from your parents is me losing, losing a language. And it's something we've been really conscious of with our children around trying to expose them to another language. Have you done anything to try and get that language back? No, too hard. Unfortunately, I, you know, I never lived in Fiji again. My family went back when I was 13 and then I stayed in New Zealand. When my family gets together, they all speak Fijian except for me. Even my Palangi dad speaks Fijian so they can hear a little bit of chatter. Why didn't you go back with them? I just turned 13 and my dad went to a school in Christchurch called Christ College and I was like the fourth generation Matson to go so he wasn't going to break the cycle. So I boarded in Christchurch for five years, uh, which was great, unbelievable school. Uh, yeah, so I missed the opportunity to go back. So everybody else went back and went to school in Fiji and learned Fijian again. Like, I think it's a real interesting one. I, th- I think for a lot of, like, I coach a lot of PI boys, ones that are born in New Zealand or came from Samoa Tonga at a very young age. And there's the real identity issue that they have when they don't speak the language. Your language definitely helps you go, yep, I speak the language, I'm Fijian. It's very hard to say that if you can't. So for years and years, if you asked me when I was at school or when I was playing for Canterbury, hey, where, you know, where are you from? I'd say, oh, I'm Fijian. And then I go back to Fiji and I don't speak. I don't quite look like a, you know, 100% Fijian. So, you know, when I was like 19, 20, it's like, mate, you're not Fijian. What are you telling you when you're Fijian? So, you, you know, suddenly you're going through that age group where it's like, whoa, actually, who am I? What, what am I? I'm saying people, I'm this, but, mate, clearly you're not that. And I see that a lot with a lot of the players that you, you kind of nurture through that 18 to 20, 25, 26. We're all trying to find out who we are in the world. What other events played a key role in your life? So I went to Christ College in Christchurch, phenomenal school. I was the only brown face in the school. There was one guy who was there in my first year for like six months, and then there was another guy in my last couple of years, Sam uh, Tunau. So, you know, I went to a school, Christchurch, very Anglo-Saxon, very, very rural. And so probably that was the other thing is that you, you go from um, the islands and then you, you go to a, uh, an environment like that and suddenly it's like, oh, okay, so this is what New Zealand is. Uh, but it's not, you know what I mean? So yeah. well, it wasn't then, it wasn't in the, in the 90s when I was there. It wasn't a real snapshot of New Zealand society. I loved it. Amazing school. Best school in New Zealand, by the way. And so probably Christ College was had a massive influence on how I then viewed the world and what New, what a New Zealander was, you know, how do you contribute to society. So that was, um, that was a really important time in my life, yeah. plus all the friends that I've met and all the values that they've hammered into me. And I think it's like anything, when you live with people, uh, you know, as a border, you absolutely connect with them at a, at a deeper level. And I think everybody who's been to boarding school will say the same thing. You might go away for five years and then you come back. And when you have a reunion or you catch up with somebody, you regress to being that 16-year-old within, within, within minutes. 
my best man was a guy called Mark Heinmarsh. Uh, we were we were really best mates at school. Uh, one because he was born in Brazil and he lived in Brazil for nine years, and, and, and he was probably similar to me in the fact that he was adjusting back to being a New Zealander. He had two New Zealand parents. I saw him once in ten years, and then when I got engaged to be married, he was the obvious choice, best mate from school. But I think a lot of people are like that. There's something about that age group for men and women that anchors really deep things that you value that span the test of time. It's like you see when you see those friends, you see a pure version of yourself. You regress, you go backwards like evolutionary 15-year-old where you're you're not as smart, you're not thinking of it. (laughs) It's the same lame jokes that still make you laugh. Within the Waikato area, there are a number of organisations that are supporting men in their journey. One of these organisations is the Male Support Services of Waikato. The founder and manager of the organisation is Mike Holloway, and he is here to share with us what their services is all about. I started because there's no support for uh, fellas out there. Everything was pretty much perpetrator-based. Being a survivor myself, I had to go through the ropes with my family, and we were virtually asked to set something up. 2008 uh, was when we registered the trust. At the beginning, it was just myself, and it was just one-on-one with other survivors and virtually walking some of the journey with them. There's guys who have been uh, sexually abused as kids or at some stage in life, and we're not talking about perpetrators, we're talking about uh, victims. The trust has really grown, so we do still do the one-on-ones. We've got three or four groups going. We also support the families. Uh, we do social work do anything that will move the guy forward, court work, anything. It's growing, so we're getting about two and a half referrals a day, so so we're looking at perhaps a new building. Uh, I want to grow the work in prisons. We extended it from sexual abuse to physical, mental, emotional and domestic abuse, so we need to try and hook him with the DHB, schools, etc., and look at Kaupapa Mariam. If a guy wants some support here in the Waikato, Hamilton uh, region, how do they get in contact with you? We don't have a lot of paperwork for referrals, so it's just a phone call or an email or a text or on the website. Just a quick notification and we'll contact them and then we'll sort it out from there. We'll make it as easy as possible. www.waikatasurvivors.org.nz 0800 677 289. The trust is a tonga for our men in the Waikato and what we're trying to do is saying Waikato look after their men. The website again is waikatosurvivors.org.nz and their number is 0800-677-289. Your biggest influence, who were they? Well, clearly mum. I think everybody would say that. I mean, if people don't say mum's in their top two, then... I find that that would be an interesting conversation. But I think mum, because she set a lot of the values. So you, you see your mum do things as you're growing up and then it's like, okay, well, that's that's standard practice. Okay, that's the way I will behave. And so mum is definitely number one. And then I was really lucky. When I went to Christ College, I figured out, well, I, I kind of learned that I was good at sport. And on the back of that, I had these amazing coaches that kind of brought me through, you know. Mr. Hamilton and, you know, fourth form, Mr. Dalzell and, and third form. And then I was really lucky. I had this amazing first 15 coach called uh, John Mills, you know, fifth, sixth and seventh form that was 
had a massive influence on me and, and often just around my behavior. So I was, I'd never done homework in my life when I went to Christ College. I, I come from a family where education isn't valued. You know, my dad didn't finish, he, my dad went to Christ College. He dropped out as a, as a 16 year old, as quick as he could, went back to the farm. Mum didn't finish school cert. So we, we were never driven to, to value education. And so I was really lucky the the guys that I had who coached me in rugby were, were, were school teachers and they were real advocates of you, you, you can be good at school the way you're good at rugby. You can get fitter on the field and in the classroom. And yeah, so those guys explained to me that these two things connect. You, you, you can become a good sportsman or a better sportsman if you do this. So I was really blessed. I went to a great school and had amazing uh, male role models. I think the school helped. They had a lot of support for people like me that were behind in reading, um, behind in things. They had tutors for lots of things. And I think I'm really blessed now because what they simply did was made me value education because I succeeded. I remember Daryl Gibson telling me Polynesian and Māori boys are in the lowest co- um, quartile academically in New Zealand. But those that play in first 15s do significantly better academically. And so for me, it was like, wow, that is really fascinating. And I've, I've always believed that excellence is, is a habit. So when you, when you learn to excel in something, it kind of trickles into other parts of your life. So being a, a really good sportsman, but being a poor husband, father, and, and businessman, or parishioner, whatever it is, that doesn't compute, if you yeah. know what I mean. And I, I always find that there's always an overflow. So if you've got poor habits in this, chances are you've got poor habits and everything else. The trajectory I was going on when I got to high school, well, I was going to fail. I would have dropped out early. I would have been another statistic. But with the support around the school and the people taking time uh, for me was was phenomenal. So, yeah, I was very blessed. I went to a school that had the support and they had teachers that took the effort. Did you go on to university? Yes, I went on to Lincoln. I majored in... Uh, wife finding 101 and uh, I've been heavily married ever since. I didn't do well at university to be fair. I'm actually back at Waikato now uh, doing an MBA. I think the time I had at Christ College definitely made me realise that education is lifelong. It, it became a bit of a driving force and so even now I'm, I'm trying to head away, I suppose bettering myself and I see doing a bit of postgraduate stuff. This next question is called my superpower question. What is your superpower? I don't really have one. I self-tag myself as the friendly Fijian, and I'm quite agreeable. And I think that's why I get on. I get on with people, and that's definitely helped with my coaching. It's also it doesn't help with coaching. Being agreeable all the time can be counterproductive. But fundamentally, I bring people together because I'm agreeable, and I'm I'm easy to be around. I, and I was thinking, mate, that's not a superpower, but I think bringing people together is something that's really important to me. So that would be my, I think that would be my superpower. Well, let me share what your wife sent to me in terms of your superpower. She said the number one superpower that you have is that you always appreciate everyone. You are welcoming and connects with all walks of life from children to older generations, all culture this is something that is part of his essence. So what you said and what she said is exactly the same thing. 
I have a theory that we see ourselves yeah. different to what mm. other people see ourselves. It's funny because maybe because that's I'm only a one-trip pony. That's all I got. <laughs> no, no, I've got two others. You're always working on increasing knowledge, podcasts, books, research. You have an insatiable thirst for that. And it's part of the reason why you're, you're such a good coach. The other one is you are an enabler, always trying to help people to be the best version of themselves. If they want help, you go out of the way, put in place mentors and development opportunities if asked. Well, yeah, I'm lucky because that's my profession as well. So, And maybe that's one of the reasons I succeeded in it because it's, it's probably part of my being as well. Actually, on that point, just, this is a side story. It's really yep. interesting. And I'm not going to mention the player, but often uh, when players get injured, I try to entice them in to help me coach. So whatever I'm coaching, I'm a backs coach, I've been a defence coach, whatever it is. And often players respond to players better. So if a player is coaching them, it's often way better than a coach coaching them. And I, I've probably on two occasions tried to get world-class players to help while they've been long-term injured, to come alongside me and help coach, you know, their teammates. And on two occasions, you can see that they just, it doesn't connect with them. They don't get a deep satisfaction from helping others. And I think when I look around the people at the Chiefs, Neil Barnes, guys like that, Nick White, one of the reasons I think you succeed is because you have this desire to help. What is success? Success to me is hard work. It's very contextual, but it's achieving um, a milestone that gives you satisfaction within a context, whether it's family or work. Success to me is being on the path to finding inner peace, but realising that chaos also needs to live. For me, success is uh, something you strive for so hard to achieve. A greatest quote I ever heard from David O. McKay, no other success can compensate for failure in the home. Living true to my God-given gift in all aspects of my life. Success is when your thoughts, words and deeds align with your inner values. Being successful for me is about trying to be better every day than I was yesterday, but not going away from values that keep me grounded, centred and inform the way I should be acting. I personally uh, measure success on how well I am as a being, how much grace I've had, and uh, how well I can overcome adversity. What is your definition of success? Many players, once they retire, struggle to adjust to normal life. Was that a struggle for you? No, it wasn't. I think there's a number of reasons. I think one, because of my wife. It's a real interesting one. When you observe players coming through the ranks, one of the biggest influences that will help determine whether they succeed or plateau is the life partner they choose. I'm never talking to players about their life partners. <laughs> yeah. But you can, see off, you can see relationships that either help them grow or stop them from growing. So I was really lucky. That was probably one of the critical pieces. My transition was helped by a really supportive partner. 
And probably the second key point is I chose when I retired. So I have this theory that if you choose when you're going to finish, chances are you're more prepared mentally and also logistically. Next year I'm finishing, I'll get everything in order, and I'm going to do this from June the 1st. Boom. Those that are told, upper, you don't have a contract now? Oh, you mean I'm finishing now? Those are the ones that struggle with the transition. So I think for me, those two things I, I, I had, I finished when I chose to finish, and I had a really supportive partner. And on the back of that, I um, and, and I would like to think that the majority of players smash into the real world like they did their, their careers because there's so many things you get as a professional player that you can transfer directly into the world. Some players battle to connect. Well, how does teamwork work? How does my discipline to go to the gym? How do I, how do I take all these skills and move them into the real world? You need to figure that out yourself a little bit, but it definitely transfers. So when did you recognise that coaching was the career path that you wanted to, to take? Man, I stumbled on it. If you asked me while I was playing, will you coach? I would have laughed. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> and my teammates would have laughed at you as well. I was never a captain. I've never been a vice captain of the team. I've never been a leadership in the group. You know, like I was the only brown guy at Christ College, so there's no way I was going to be captain there. <laughs> brown people are meant to be quiet and humble and sit in the corner and just run hard and tackle hard, but be quiet. So I was never going to be a coach. When I was in Japan, they sacked the coach in my third year and they looked around and they were like, hey, can you be like the interim coach? I'm like, oh, okay. So then I was like an interim coach for, the, for that season and I ended up coaching for three years and playing in Japan. But I never had a, like, oh, I'm going to be a coach when I finish, I'm going to do all these things. Um, I stumbled into it. You stumbled into it, but why have you been so successful at it? And this goes back to what we were saying before. I reckon a lot of the, you call them superpowers, but a lot of the things that make me tick are the reason I'm a good coach. That makes sense. So for some people, they've got to try and um, learn to be more empathetic. You know, all those things that I probably do innately, you know, what you do in the village helps you be a great team coach. Uh, I probably had those bits and pieces. You know, I'm, I'm not that smart about the game. I'm not a biomechanist. I don't know anything about planning. But what I can do is bring people together and have us all walking in the same direction together. You're always there and thereabouts to really cracking into the All Blacks. And as I mentioned in the intro, you made the All Black team, but you never played a test. As a player, how did you deal with the disappointment of really not kicking on? Yeah, it's a real interesting one. And it's, it's, I'm a really grateful person. So when I made the All Blacks, I was just grateful to be there. That is, uh, I don't know, there's that phrase from that really famous book that good is the enemy of great. So the difference between an All Black that plays in the test matches and becomes, you know, someone we speak about on, the, on a day, because some people would be surprised that I'm an All Black. People wouldn't even know that. You know, I've, I've got an All Black number, but that's it. Yeah. And so I probably didn't have the drive and the skill sets to push myself to do more. I didn't have the competitive spirit that 
some people have that just they've got the single-minded determination to do everything they can. I was probably just happy to be there. And when I reflect on that and when I look at players, that's what I see sometimes. So there was no disappointment, but that's the issue, Papa. So my issue is I'm just happy to be in the room. And I think a lot of, and this is a sweeping statement, and I know some of my PI friends will say you're wrong, but a lot of us, um, a lot of PIs are just really grateful. So to be given a contract, I'm just really humble and thankful you've given me this, but that actually stops them going, get that out of my way. I'm going to make this the sole driving force of my life and I'm going to be the best I can be. I probably wasn't that disappointed. I probably was aware that I, I mean, I couldn't tackle like Frank Bunce. I couldn't run like Tana Umanga. I wasn't fit like Mark Mayer-Hoffler. And so, you, you, you know, you're, I also felt I was really aware of my shortfalls. And that's probably something else, you know, PIs are really good at beating themselves with, you can't be that. And, you know, you've got your whole village saying, oh, you missed that tackle. And, you, oh, you know, you're poos at that, bro. How can we turn good to great? You know, ask someone else that question because that's a, that's a, like a day conversation, isn't it? I think mindset's everything. So my other answer to that, my other answer to that when you didn't make the Orplex, you know, how did you deal with that? The issue I had was my mindset. So I'm a massive advocate of Carol Dweck and, and, and growth mindset as a concept. I think your, your desire to grow is determined by whether you think you're, you're fixed or you can move stuff. So, and so I was always pat on the back for being a natural talent. And I reckon that's one of the reasons you don't go from good to great because you think I'm here. You know what I mean? But actually, no great player has just purely been a natural talent that worked at it. Well, that's often what creates resiliency in, in people. And that's why you see a lot of people who've had hardship early have gone on to do great things because it becomes a tool that they know that actually I can get through this. I can persevere through this. On a side note, what we're finding in rugby around talent ID is kids from smaller schools are playing at higher levels as a general rule. So you get a lot of these big factory schools that win the national title every year, that dominate their provincial game every year, like five years you hear teams won it for five years in a row. We're actually finding at the professional level, those kids don't come through, that the kids from the smaller schools that have been at a school and they're like the only player that's good at their school every second game they get beat so the kids used to losing and when they win the teams had to play unbelievably well to win and this players had to carry the team on their shoulders for like three years that resiliency and hard work and losing and and learning to and often smaller schools don't have the resources there's not 2,000 kids standing behind me doing a haka mm. on TV when we, when we play these big games. There's like 50 kids who are heckling you. Those kids play the game because they love it. They struggle for five years at school. Those are the kids that now have these pros. Traditionally, barbershops have been more than just a place for a haircut. Barbershops are safe spaces for men where they can socialise and talk. In Hamilton, Reggie's Barbershops, one of those barbershops, and that has been operating since 2005. 
at Reggie's Barber Shop, you not only get a quality cut, but you get a great environment, great barbers, great conversation, and you're made to feel more than just a number. You don't have to believe what I say. Here is some of the feedback that Reggie gets. Always a cool vibe at Reggie's. Nice and chill. Few laughs. Great atmosphere. Love the way they cut my hair and trim my beard. They really listen to what you want and always keen for yarns. Awesome atmosphere created by awesome people. You guys are amazing. Amazing haircuts and great uplifting kōrero. Too meke. Love the vibe. Toddler loves the stylish cuts. And Mumsy loves those competitive prices. This really is the best barbers ever. Reggie is so friendly and does exactly what you're asking for. He did an amazing job with my hubby's hair. Reggie's is always buzzing. Such a great atmosphere and a great asset to Frankton. Sometimes the queues are out the door. During summer, the music is always pumping. My son loves getting his haircut there. Awesome atmosphere. My husband got his haircut and beard trimmed, and the barber took his time to talk and gave a very nice personalised service. Would highly recommend. I get my haircut at Reggie's every month, and I also take my three sons there. The people are friendly and give a great cut, and it's always a good price. In my experience, Reggie's is the best barber shop in H-Town. So if you want a great cut, great company, great conversation, visit Reggie's Barber Shop. Shop 140 Lake Road, Frankton, Hamilton, or call 07-847-5275. Now, what has life taught you, Tim? It's taught me to be grateful. I think that's the cornerstone of my happiness is being grateful. Become responsible for something. Like, I was lucky because I became a father, not relatively early, I was like 23, having responsibility is key key part of being a man, I reckon. And then have, becoming a father is completely changes your world. So take responsibility for something in your household if you're 14, 15, and keep moving physically. One of the things I'm lucky with, I'm in an industry where we move because we have to, but 46-year-old Polynesian men that are 112 kilos the stats aren't very good for people like me. And so I think moving has helped me with my physical health, but more importantly, my mental health. You've probably gone through many of the experiences that the players are currently going through. What lessons can you share that could help the current players deal with the issues that they're facing? There's kind of three. Players have to bring this unbelievable effort. That's, that's the cornerstone of success. They also need really supportive environments. And then what they also need is they need to find a mentor in their life that helps them kind of keep on track, kind of audits their plan in, in, in some respect. That might be a father, that might be a coach, it might be a grandfather, it might be the komatua. But those are the three things. If you, if you look at all the research on excellence and if you look at Ericsson's work on, on, on expertise, those are the three things. Do you um, use this in your own practice on how you do your job at the moment? I think so. I've been really lucky. Every environment that I've been in has had the supportive environment. So the New Zealand franchises and the rugby the provincial unions that I've been with, the environments are really well put together. You know, we've got the Rugby Players Associations, have got a PDM who's 
whole focus is to ensure that the players have what they need to succeed off the field, whether it be mental skills, mental health, and all the day-to-day things. And then hopefully the coaching group, you know, hopefully we bring a support around becoming the best player or athlete they can be. So we're we're really lucky in that regard. There are two of those big ticks, not completely, but you could say that the environment's pretty supportive. And somewhere in there, there's a, there's a, a mentor, hopefully for a, for a player they can connect with. But to be fair, a lot of the mentors might be away from rugby. And I think that's still really valuable. I think I, think I, I did some maths on this that, your rugby career is 8% of your life. We think rugby is all-consuming. And it's like, I'm really conscious. I'm tabs, I play rugby, is different from saying I'm tabs, the rugby player. So when your whole identity is, is integrated completely as being a rugby player, I don't think it's healthy in the long run. Your rugby career is only 8% of your life. So there's a 90% of your life is not going to be here, lads. So having a, having a mentor outside the game is actually really healthy. Komatua, family member, uncle, old first 15 coach. I think that's really important. So I've been really lucky. A lot of the coaches that I've had have, are still my mentors now. And Mark Vincent was my first club coach. And he, he's still, you know, decades on. I'm still a good friend and someone I call when I feel uh, under pressure and he reaches out when he knows he should. I'm so lucky. I've got pretty good men that are still my mentors. My final question I have for you, Tab, is um, you know, the name of the podcast is, is called Becoming Tani. We named it after Tani because of his desire to learn and grow, but also because Tani is one of the Māori names for mm. men. So my last question is, what does it mean to become a man? It's in that earlier answer. I think becoming a man is about responsibility. I think that's the cornerstone of why, not why we exist, but a lot of our, a lot of our unhappiness as men is because we're not taking responsibility for something, whether that be your own actions or the responsibilities you have for your family or your friends. So I think becoming a man is about your journey into responsibility. I wish I'd had more time to think about that answer. It's a great question. If you know what that journey or the end point of the journey is, then the pathway is easier. And, and maybe when I'm, I'm reflecting on my, my journey as a man, like I wish I knew that coming through and I would have walked towards being responsible more, taking responsibility for my actions, and where I was going and my interactions with my you know, life partner and family members and then children. Nō reira, ngā mihi mahana ki a koe i whakarongo mai ki te kete kona i pūrangi nei tu tāne. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Tāne podcast. We have appreciated all your uh, love and support um, that we've received so far, so please... Uh, keep supporting us. Um, if you have enjoyed today's podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe and to share with your family and friends. As I've mentioned previously, we have a website which is www.becomingtane.men. We have an email as well, which is info at becomingtane.men. And you can also uh, connect with us on Facebook.
Our next episode is with Watson Ohia, who is currently the CEO of Nakura Aiwi or Aotearoa. But before we go, I'd like to give a quick acknowledgement to Aaron Moike, who edited this podcast, and also Kanoa Sadler, who did the music for this podcast. So I appreciate your skills. Finally, I want you to remember that uh, the Becoming Tane podcast is all about growing great guys. Moving on.